This is CliffCentral.com. Are we free to define our own identity and the way we are perceived by others? Race, gender, purported lived experience, privilege, victimhood. Who decides whether or not we form part of a particular social group? What purpose does social group classification serve? And does a person's alleged affiliation to a particular social group give them more moral authority to speak on certain topics, or perhaps even on all topics, than others who are said not to belong to the social group in question? What tensions exist between group and individual identity? On today's episode, Freedom versus Identity Politics. This show is brought to you by the Friedrich Naumann Foundation for Freedom and hosted by Gwen and Gwenya and Mark Oppenheimer. So, Gwen, let's start a little bit talking about um, how you work out whether you belong to a group or not. So let's think about racial identity, right? So South Africa used to have a legislature um, that would define what your race was. And you would go to the, the race tester and uh, they would put a pencil in your hair, they would take out the panatone sheet and work out what race uh, you belong to. And uh, at the time, the view was that this was repugnant. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and now again in South Africa, we sort of do similar things with trying to work out what particular racial groups people belong to, despite the fact that there's a view among scientists that uh, race has no biological basis. But there's some sort of social basis to it. So um, people view each other as if they are part of racial groups, and they often want to be able to define themselves as being part of a racial group. So if we think about Rachel Dolezal recently coming to South Africa um, and saying that she should be given the, the freedom to define her identity, that she identifies um, as black. Now, she says she doesn't identify as African-American. So because she doesn't have an African lineage, she doesn't think that she can claim that identity. So she thinks there's some facts that could play a role about what you can select for yourself, but she thinks that calling herself black um, is a fair thing to do that she should be allowed to choose. What's your view on that? Well, for me, what's what's problematic about these groups is not only the difficulty perhaps in classification, but is why we would want to classify. I mean – when people obviously, I think classification becomes important when there's some kind of privilege at stake. Of course, in our apartheid, um, you know, history, that privilege could be an economic privilege, privilege to live in a particular area, etc. And we're seeing now with the rise in a, a new or modern type of identity politics is there are still actually privileges with belonging to even these supposed, um, you know, victim groups. So it might be a privilege to speak, so the right to speak in a particular issue. Um, it might be a privilege to associate the particular grievance. So to say that, you know, this only we can speak of a particular grievance. And it's that entitlement to freedom of speech or to um, claim a particular grievance that makes people want to belong to, to it. And I think that's the danger is that, you know, if we want to move away from group classifications, we need to remove the privileges that associates with belonging to a group. And instead, the current identity politics reinforces why people want to belong in racial or gender silos because there are currently particular privileges associated with belonging to a group. So do you think if someone says, you know, as a uh, black South African woman, I I can talk about certain issues with a sense of moral authority uh, and that if someone talks about this issue who is not part of this group, that they lack authority and they should be silenced or shut out. Is there any legitimacy in that view? 
I think for policy reasons, there might be instances where, where potentially we might want to recognize groups. But for me, there's almost an inherent discomfort because of how specific and how narrow you might want to be in, in ascribing that common experience. So yes, you know, myself and other women may both be black and, you know, of course, female. But so many other experiences that we may have had will inform our world position today, worldview, that it's very difficult to ascribe what we think and feel as being just particular attributes of one aspect or two aspects of our identity. So you would take the view that you know people are not interchangeable for each other. We can't just go and take some other member of that group and assign them a set of beliefs or a set of experiences that really what's gone on is a particular individual experience that someone's had and that's really doing the work. Yes, or I mean or to say that there are things that 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 people can have in common, but that those things don't operate in isolation. And it's that strange amalgamation between, fine, a shared experience, but then on top of the experiences we did not share that might then alter even the shared experience. hope that doesn't come across as uh, too confusing, but the point is that whilst we may have certain shared experiences, the experiences that we don't have in common also influences the shared experiences and allow us to view things in a particular, in a particular light. So are you saying we should, you know, do an intersectionalist thing? So what we do is we work out all the different group affiliations that you have. And so you can say, and we come up with some sort of power hierarchy. So you can say, well, as a uh, Latino uh, trans man um, amputee, you know, I fall at the you know top or bottom of the hierarchy. I'm not sure which one they would want to be on. Uh, and that gives you some sort of authority. We've taken an, enough of your group affiliations into account to give you a sense of who you are and which group you can yeah. represent. I think we're obviously moving into quite a technical direction. I think there are actually two aspects to the identity politics conversation. The one is around, maybe we can call it, um, you know, maybe a, a moral position or a you know, normative one. Is it good or ought we to recognize particular groups? And maybe we can move into, um, you know, that kind of principled analysis. But there's a separate area to think of moving in now is almost a technical one. You know, can we ascertain whether or not particular worldviews or opinions can be attributed to a belonging to a particular social group? And I think the technical specifications of trying to conduct such a study would be would be impossible as to make the the attempt futile so to try and work backwards regress backwards a view that i hold and say i hold it because i'm a black woman and not because i'm a black woman who also grew up in durban as opposed to you know what if a black woman who grew up in johannesburg didn't share that particular view so there's so many variables in determining a particular opinion, that it's so difficult to regress it back to one starting point. And I think that that effort in and of itself would be so, you know, extreme and imp- impossible, I think, as to yield any results that have any beneficial value. So you've raised an interesting question about looking at groups from a poli- policy perspective. So you might think that government's trying to formulate a policy about um, what particular racial groups want or what would be good for them, and they could do this, this surveying, right? Um but it might be the case that if you go in with the assumption that it's the race group that has the preference as opposed to something else, that you miss it in the data. Mm-hmm. So really what's going on is not the racial affiliation but something regional because people are part of this, this area of the country. They're, um, they grew up in an urban area or they're very wealthy. Exactly. Or, you know, and so really all those things get muddied by the sort of assumption about race or gender. Um, mm-hmm. And if I think about some of the data produced by the Institute for Race Relations, you know, you find that when South Africans are asked questions and then you divvy it up along, you know, apartheid racial categories, that often they answer in very similar ways with the implication that race isn't doing much work at all. 
Um, mm. And so we might think, as you say, from a principles perspective, um, doing the categorization is bad. And from a data perspective, it's not yielding the results that you think they would um, and that you should just abandon it on that basis. Yeah. I mean, as I said, I think the exercise would be so technically cumbersome as to, I think, yield any benefits you might yield from it to be um, almost futile. Um, but something else I would add to that is the fact that people don't recognize often the minorities within the supposed minorities. Well, of course, when we speak in the South African context, you know, black people aren't a minority, but of course, these these debates around identity politics are mirrored in other countries as well, particularly at the moment in, in the United States. Um, so you might want to to think that, you know, in a group, for example, just black people or let's say with women, you know, having this viewpoint where you attach it to the entire group, you actually leave out women within that group who don't share those views. So almost a minority within the minority and that it's actually a way to um, give this particular group more power over others, which for me is interesting because the the core what what grounds this this idea is the is the issue of power dynamics, and that supposedly they've been robbed of power vis a vis another group, usually white male, mm. um, the white male capitalist um, system, um, and so you know if that's the adversary, what's useful to to think about is the minority within that particular group as well. So what you might have is that if we just look at the group itself that um, certain people are going to be usurped of their power because of others inside the group, because of how we've well, exactly, categorized them yes. together. And that might be very dangerous. Yeah. I, I well, I'm, think because I'm trying to get us to think about, you know, aside of the technical, you know, feasibility, why mm. might we find identity politics problematic? So moving aside from whether, you know, what if in the future we could, because obviously with big data and the type of analysis we can do, I could foreseeably envision perhaps a program that might be able to collect through some mass and ongoing survey different viewpoints of people who belong to a particular group and perhaps in some powerful computational mechanism regress back that view to a defining characteristic. So I'm trying to move away from, fine, let's say it is possible to, to do this, to synthesize people's viewpoints to a single defining characteristic of theirs. Mm. Is it useful for us to do so? Do we want to do so? And what might be the harmful effects of, of, of treating people as just products of that particular characteristic? It seems like there's always going to be a conceptual arbitrariness about how we do this you know, which group do you belong to? So I always think that when people talk about white South Africans, it's a bizarre group because you're talking about people from, you know, all around the world. You've got, um, you know, my ancestors fled Nazi Germany in the 30s, so they were German. Um, you've got people coming from Greece. You've got people coming from New Zealand and America and the UK, speaking different languages, holding different values from different religious groups. Why just say you're all white people? You know, yeah. uh, you know, these are people that would have, you know, in their homelands fought each other for generations. And the idea that they're just part of the same group, they would find, you know, uh, baffling. Yeah. Uh, and you might think that there's the same about any other ethnic group that there's, you know, the idea that you can go and lump all black people together is bizarre when you've got, you know, all sorts of different language groups, you know, different traditions, different cultures, you know, inside this one group. Um, so when we're doing this sort of sense of which group do you belong to, um, there's always going to be a narrowing that we can do to try and work out, you know, where is the true affiliation. Yeah. And uh, that might not be at all useful to lump you in these big categories. Yeah. I mean, of course, as you, as you point out, there's this conceptual arbitrariness. But I'm also worried about politically, in an almost ideal sense, whether we would desire um, to do this. And for me, politics is about, or at least even life, if you want to get that existential, is about human progress. And I feel that, you know, a 
a political language or, or dialogue should be about how do we advance um, our society or mm. the human race in general. So the language of it should be aspirational. And I think that's what belief systems are, ones that aren't based on, you know, social characteristics or identity characteristics. They're almost a common belief system that can be shared regardless of what your gender, race, social background, etc. is. But it's based, it's premised on an idea or a belief in something, something aspirational. Whereas identity politics, I find, takes us back to almost a defensive type of politics. It's not a politics of aspiration, but a politics of grievance. Mm. So it's, you know, it's not what do we aspire to be, it's who can we protect ourselves against. Yeah, so you might. So think I think it, for me, it speaks almost almost against the entire political project of what we're trying to do when we form a society, a government, etc. There's also an amount of choice that you can have about saying, you know, we're all Democrats or Republicans. You know, we're we're unifying around an idea, regardless of our identity. There's that melting pot that happens mm. when you rally around the idea, as opposed to the sort of balkanization on the grounds of ethnic lines to say, well, you you're not part of me; you're part of that other group. Um, as you say, then it becomes a politics of grievance as opposed to one of unity. Um, yeah. And you might think that this idea of building towards one common human project is a good one. You know, so uh, when Macron was elected, you know, his his famous tweet was, um, "Make the planet great again," as opposed to "Make America great again." You know, that you're yeah. looking at the sense of of global unity and saying we're all involved in this thing together. You know, what can we do as global citizens as opposed to, you know, uh, what can we do as you know citizens of Pittsburgh. Yeah. And I think it also introduces interesting ways for us to, to view power, which if we go back to that grounding tenet of identity politics to say, for me, it, it almost comes with an assumption that power dynamics are static, that there is an established you know, hierarchy and in every event and every experience we have in life is determined by that particular power ratio. Mm. Whereas for me, the, tr the reality is that actually power is, doesn't operate in a static or linear fashion. So you might find yourself in a particular scenario where as a black woman, I'm in a powerful position in that scenario, but in a different case, I'm not in a position of power. So it's not this, this, the static norm that exists throughout my daily experience. And I say that thinking of ex specific examples. So, for example, in South Africa, the context of, you know, let's pick at Rhodes University what happened when they published the list of those alleged um, male rapists to say in that mob crowd where you have, you know, let's say a group of women or just a group of university students shouting at these particular um, men and, you know, outing um, their names, who's in a position of power in that particular scenario? Is it the mob, which even if it was, you know, 90% female or is it, are, is it those men who've been um, accused without proper due process? So for me, I think power operates in very context-specific ways. And that context, you know, might change how we choose to define the victim and the person who's the bully. Yeah, and if we're going to be content-specific um, to say that you know, it really matters which realm you're in, you know, often you want to talk about the particular individual we're talking about. So, I mean, in your personal experience, you've sort of, you know, uh, been dealt with in interesting ways so mm -hmm. you know you'll express a view as Gwen uh, and other people will say well you're a race traitor because you've expressed a view that isn't held by the rest of black people yeah. with an assumption about you know the person asserting that saying well I know what everyone else thinks who's part of this racial group or this gender group um, mm -hmm. and that you'll then you know be vilified on that basis for not towing the line 
Uh, yes. So, I mean, as, as I said, it creates, and I think it, it, it goes back to the point I was raising, it, it creates exclusions, even ironically within that group itself. You create minorities within minorities, or you create disempowered groups within the disempowered groups. So you might want to think that, um, you know, a racial politics or an identity politics empowers a particular group, but then there are individuals within that group who might not share the broader group view, and then are are excluded and completely silenced because they don't conform to that group norm. And that's, that's quite dangerous as well. Sure. Well, what you find is that it gets more pernicious, right? So that's, they won't describe you as a minority within the group. They'll say that you're not even part of the group. You know, that, uh, you know, I've seen that, uh, Andile has described you not as black, but as non-white. Yes. You know, that the idea is yeah, that. Yeah, you're referring to Andile Mkutama, the BLF, um. Yes. Yeah. Black yeah. first, land first. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, the the, <laughs> yeah. yeah they've struggled with getting their acronym right. <laughs> yes. uh, although they haven't seemed to struggle with um, getting external funding. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, 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 think, I saw yeah. that they were uh, protesting in support of uh, President Zuma outside the Gupta House. Uh, yes, yeah. So they're loved by some. Yes, but yes, to your point that Andile was, um, might be a part of the group of, or part of some people who might choose to say that my views, you know, I don't represent black people. Um, yes, yeah, and there was a call for you to be rehabilitated. That if you went through the correct, uh, you know, um, thought cleansing camp, that you could then be welcomed back into the, yes, the black, black caucus. Back into the fold. <laughs> yes, yeah, uh, you know. But for now, you remain a race traitor. <laughs> well, I think you know the conversation we've had really presents those those tensions and those complexities because on the one hand, we're saying it might be valuable to understand you know, beliefs of a group or experience of a group for the sake of perhaps designing policy, et cetera, of course, assuming that we can narrow it down. Mm. But in other cases, it's harmful if certain individuals are then excluded from the group. But, I mean, not believing in group identity, I don't actually have a problem with being excluded from, from that group. And I think the context in which you're being excluded, of course, matters. You know, if, if it's used to say you cannot contribute to a conversation around the empowerment of poor people in South Africa because you do not conform to what the majority of poor black South Africans feel. So when it's used to silence, I find it problematic. But as a mere categorization to say that you are not black, I don't think I have a problem with that in and of itself. It's, it's more about what is the consequence of excluding me from the group. If you exclude me from the group in order to rob me of particular rights and privileges, then we can talk about why I don't have access to, to talk about something or to, to, to stake claim to a particular grievance. Mm. Um, but, but for me, it's, it's really about the consequence of belonging to that group as opposed to the simple badge of honor of, of saying you do belong in and of itself. So there was an interesting incident at UCT recently, right? So Wally Sienka, uh, um, you know, famous writer, is invited to speak. Yes, yes. And we have is. a multiracial audience. Um, and one of the students stands up and says, uh, the white people need to leave. Um, and some of them said, no, but we're allies to this cause. You know, we want to celebrate this great black African writer. And they said, but your presence... Um, is taking up too much space, too much sort of emotional, intellectual space. Mm. So we will not continue until you vacate. And this is sort of a view that we're starting to see creep up more and more, um, mm. that it's not only is it illegitimate for you to take part in this platform and expressive view because of your identity, um, but even to try and describe yourself an, as an ally is illegitimate mm. uh, because of your identity. Yeah, I mean, I've certainly experienced, not personally, but seen and witnessed um, you know those that, that particular kind of exclusionary case but I think it's incumbent on those who 
belong to said group to say, actually, that is a bit extreme and that does not represent us. Because often when you raise examples such as this, those who do ascribe to some form of identity politics would then say, actually, you're misaligning our view, you're misrepresenting what we actually stand for, that you, in fact, we do accept allies, that you can be someone who's sympathetic or empathetic and uh, promotes a particular social um, group, whether it be women or black people, even though you do not belong to that group. And we admit allies as long as you're willing to take up our cause. But then I think those who feel that way, it's incumbent on them to call out those who do not speak on their behalf. Because as long as they don't, then I think it's fair to assume that if, you know, for example, in that particular talk, if that gets raised and the audience nods their heads or people allow that particular member of the audience to then actually be removed, then you're, you're an accomplice um, to, to that action. Mm, sure. So this has come up quite interestingly in the realm of literature. So um, the author of this quite famous book called We Need to Talk About Kevin, um, and there was a movie mm. made about it, um, gave what she thought would be a rather banal um, speech about the nature of being a writer and that you know writers often have to remove their, their personal you know, background when writing about another character so they can inhabit that person's body. You know, so she'll say that you know, in order to write about a man, I don't need to be a man. You know, in order to write about someone from West Africa, I don't have to be a West African. Um, and after, after this um, address that she gave, um, she was vehemently criticized, you know, someone who is appropriating other people's cultures for her own benefit. Um, mm. And this is sort of this interesting thing about when we talk about cultural appropriation and identity politics, you know, are there certain things you can say, well, how dare you, um, you know, engage in my custom because it's part of my group affinity. Um, and you are doing that as a sort of interloper, you know, so if you want to um, dress a certain way or have your hair a certain way, um, you can't because mm. it's mine. Well, for, for me, I think that that's two separate things because as soon as somebody speaks on behalf of a group, I think it's problematic whether or not they belong to that group. So whether you are a black person speaking on behalf of other black people or whether you choose to be a white person who thinks that you can speak about black experiences, I feel neither of those two people have any legitimacy to mm. do so. Um, what, where I think people do have a space in order to comment on a group which, to which they do not belong is perhaps in terms of solutions. So I think someone observing from afar from the United States, say, can look at the African and say, look, I've done a study of developing economies or countries with similar situations, and I think this solution might work in this context. Because what you're doing there when you're talking about solutions is you're actually trying to aggregate common experiences and and try and find a, a solution. So I think there is something to be said about aggregating data um, and trends, etc., and looking for commonalities or things that might work. And for that reason, I think, and that, that's what we all do in, when we're proposing a solution for, for anything, is we're aggregating data, and anyone can take part in that aggregation exercise. Because even as an individual, as a black person, if I choose to come up with a solution for you know, dealing, let's say, with some problems related specifically to apartheid, I would be conducting an aggregation exercise. I would be talking from my own experience, but then hopefully I would be trying to collate what's in common in that experience, which I cannot know. I cannot know what another black individual felt. So I think when it comes to solution, whether you belong to a group or you don't, we're all in that 
common situation of ag- of aggregating experiences that are not ours. You're saying that's part of what you do as an expert, right? Is you step outside your own exactly. personal experience. Um, you go and look at what other people have felt, and then you try and come up with some, you know, fair-minded, independent solution. Uh, it seems like there is resistance to that, right? The idea that, well, what do you know? You know, you're not one of us. Uh, don't come and impose your, you know, white Western mm-hmm. solutions upon us. You know? um, but I mean, the writer is sort of doing something different because the writer, of fiction at least, is not really trying to make a proclamation about a group. What they're trying to do is. Um, inhabit the mind of someone that they don't know and create this figure um, and explore this idea, you know, and there, mm-hmm. there does seem to be some resistance to that, the idea that, you know, men ought not to write about women. And uh, when they do that, they're, uh, they've done something illegitimate. But I think it's because they're committing a common fallacy is to assume that with this writer inhibiting a particular character, um, sorry, not inhibiting, but inhabiting the space or ideas or et cetera of a particular character, that they are doing so on behalf of a whole group. But I mm. think as long as there's the assumption that, look, I've created said character who, share, who holds these and these um, views and experiences, well, such a character could foreseeably exist. But that's what I'm saying is to not make it seem as though if you belong to a group or if you're outside of the group, that you're faced with a different set of challenges. I think it's exactly the same. Whether you're part of the group or outside of that group, you cannot speak on behalf of a group if you're speaking as a X. But if you're then speaking about solutions, again, you're in the same position because what you're doing now is trying to come up with a common situation for a group that you cannot possibly know intimately. So even as a member of being, you know, having a black skin, I cannot speak about other people's experiences. So in fact, when I analyze solutions for black South Africans or, you know, a post-apartheid solution, I'm conducting the exact same exercise as a white person is in terms of aggregating experiences that are outside of myself. So I actually think that whether you're talking about, you know, speaking about historical experiences or whether you're trying to propose solutions, I don't find people in different groups to be in a different situation there. I think they can be analyzed in exactly the same way. Hmm. We've had quite a wide-ranging discussion today. I think we've sort of hmm. interrogated the idea of what does it mean to belong to a particular group, um, you know, whether that gives you particular expertise when, you know, claiming solutions, whether you're entitled to try on the, you know, the cultures or the sort of behaviors of other groups, Um so thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Thanks from me, Cecilia Koch from the Friedrich Naumann Foundation for Freedom, for joining us for this episode of Freedom Versus. We hope you found it thought-provoking. And thanks to Mtoba Chapi for the editing, visuals and graphics, and Greg Cohen for the audio. Please subscribe to our podcast and our YouTube channel, Freedom Versus. That's two words, and Versus is spelled V-E-R-S-U-S. There, you can watch the discussions between Gwen and Mark. Our YouTube channel also features additional content. Enjoy! This is CliffCentral.com.